0: Sometimes they're really simple. Sometimes they're quite
1: complex. Sometimes they're somewhat silly. And sometimes they're deadly
0: serious. This morning we want to ask the question, what would you do? What would you do?
1: Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word now, we invite you to speak in very personal terms. Not just something that kind of is some academic exercise of some sort, but it's real world stuff. And your word, with numbers of times, because they chose not to step into those opportunities, that they missed out so much, that God wanted to give, that God wanted to do through them. And it would be my prayer that in my life, but also in all of your lives, that we won't miss out on the significant opportunities that God, I believe, is giving us as we go through what we're going through right now. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Exodus. You can use your device, of course. Exodus chapter one. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 1 and I'm going to read this chapter to you. Last week we did kind of an overview of the whole story. We talked about at the end of our life we will look back and we will wonder about some of the choices we made and the opportunities we stepped to and the things we missed. Let's begin now in Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, and then all the sons are mentioned. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous, so the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look! Look! He said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah? when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why did you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, they gave their families, God gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let the girls live. I want to tell you a little story that's based on the pages of history, that's based on historical investigation by historians, as well as a tiny bit of Scott's imagination. Joseph, the son of Jacob, becomes prime minister. We know he becomes second in command of all the nation of Egypt. This is because God supernaturally used him to uh, save the nation, in a sense, from the famine that came in all of that region. And so they were prepared for the famine because of God's work through Joseph. And as a result of this, all of his family was brought, all 70 members of his family was brought into Egypt. They were celebrated This is wonderful, and as time goes by, in keeping with the Genesis 12 promise of God, they begin to multiply greatly. A long period of time goes by, more than 400 years, and during this time, a new pharaoh carefully plots and secures the leadership of Egypt. He forces out the reigning pharaoh who needs to escape the country, or he would have been killed, and he takes his family and goes into exile. The new pharaoh is believed to be a guy by the name of Amenhotep I. And he begins the task of establishing his own dynasty. And like world leaders, he quickly moves to consolidate his position in order to prevent the former pharaoh from coming back and raising up some people to throw him out of power and retake power. And so, Aminatep forms the Egyptian equivalent of the KGB, now called the FSB, and several people loyal to the former pharaoh have black chariots pull up in the middle of the night, and these people disappear. As pharaoh is thinking about how to further consolidate his power, He begins to hear reports of a large people group. Some people estimate as much as two to two and a half million people that are living within his borders. And he suspects they might be a potential enemy because the previous pharaoh had been good to them. And he wonders if they might rally around him and retake power. This is the Hebrew people. He notes from his advisors that basically the Hebrew people have not intermarried with the, with the Egyptians, and effectively they are a nation within the nation of Egypt. They also live in one of the best subdivisions in the land, in the land of Goshen, which is part of the eastern plain of the Nile, the eastern delta, sorry, of the Nile. At his next weekly cabinet meeting with his people, Aminatab sits down and he says, what are we going to do with this people group within our own borders? I'm concerned that these Hebrews are enjoying a comfortable lifestyle on our dime, and because of the previous administration, they might be wanting to align with them and raise up in rebellion against us and retake the throne." Well, the cabinet discussed options, and a decision was made by Pharaoh. Let's make them our slaves, and we will control them and brutally oppress them, ruthlessly. The text says two times. Well, time goes by, and Pharaoh wants to see what his experiment has yielded. He brings in some of his advisors, and they say, Pharaoh, we are sad to report that the Israelites, the more we oppress them, the more they seem to multiply and spread. And to be honest with you, Pharaoh, it's almost like their God is blessing them. We can't figure it out. Well, at the next meeting of the cabinet, the agenda is cleared to deal with the Israelite crisis. Options are considered and discarded, and finally, Pharaoh makes his choice. Secret genocide. We will quietly murder all the newborn male children, and we will leave the females alive to intermarry with the Egyptian men in our nation, and eventually, within a generation or so, we will be rid of this problem. And so Pharaoh calls in the two chief Hebrew midwives who are in charge of all the midwives of the nation of Israel. And he speaks to them verbally, face-to-face, because he doesn't want a paper trail. He doesn't want any memos leaked to the press. And he says to them, when the Hebrew women are on the birth stool, which is what they used at that time, and the woman has just given birth, and she's a little bit faint, and the husband is out in the bulrushes, handing out chocolate cigars to all his friends. If it's a boy, kill it. and Just say it died. Don't worry. No government agencies, none of the police, will ask any awkward questions. We've got your back.
0: Well, the women leave the room shaken because they fear God. And there is no way...
1: They will do this evil thing, even though the presumption is they will lose their lives as a result. Because when you don't obey Pharaoh, you die. They understand fundamentally, and they have been taught since they were first little girls, that God is our creator, that human beings are created by Him. We are told in the book of Genesis that we are created in his image, and that we have a special place in the creation. And because of this, we have a monster responsibility to care for all of the creation appropriately. And no matter what, even if it costs our lives, the women say, we will not do this. Time passes. And Pharaoh gets a report that the number of Hebrew boys is still increasing. And the pharaoh calls in these women and goes, what's going on? And they say, well, great pharaoh, Egyptian women are wonderful. But they are like the women on the cover of Vogue. They concentrate all their time on looking beautiful rather than working in the fields and doing heavy labor. And so they are somewhat frail and they need assistance to give birth. But Hebrew women are strong. You have them out working in the the fields and building bricks and building your storage cities. And so because they are so hard-working, field-type people, they just give birth on their own before the midwives even get there. And the next day, they're back out making bricks for you again. Isn't that wonderful, Pharaoh? Well, Laminatep is furious and throws them out. That night, he calls for a secret meeting, an emergency meeting, of his cabinet. And the candles burn late in the palace's situation room. We must be more direct. And the cabinet ministers all slowly nod their head in agreement. Minutes later, the cabinet ministers are hustled out of the palace, past the media, muttering no comment as they step into their waiting-stretched chariots. The next day, Pharaoh's press secretary rises up and issues a press release by order of Pharaoh Amenhotep I. All male newborn Hebrew babies will be thrown into the Nile from this
0: day forward. And the murder begins. How will I react? When someone asks me to do something, I know it's wrong. Two times in the passage, it says the women feared God and refused to do what
1: they knew to be wrong, even though they assumed it would cost them their lives. We will not murder innocent children. What would you and I do? Well, their lives were spared, we see in the story, they were blessed by a gracious and giving God. And to be honest with you, that may be your experience. But I can't promise you that. In fact, Scripture tells us that when we follow God's biblical lead, we will suffer. It says in Scripture, we will have trouble. And so as a Christ follower, there are going to be times when we will suffer for our faith. And that could look like a variety of things. It could just be very low grade. Someone calls you some names. You might get fined. You might lose a job because you're a follower of Jesus. You might be denied educational opportunities. You might not get proper health care. You might get jailed. You might even die for following God's lead. And certainly this goes on in a number of places all around the world right now. In fact, I just saw something yesterday
0: about this in Pakistan. And it may well, and I believe it is coming here, eventually.
1: In fact, I recently received an update from a family in the Middle East, in a country where uh, constitutionally it's totally fine to be a Christ follower, but simply because they are followers of Christ, the dad and the mom have been arrested And the secret police have invited some of their children in for a chat. About eight years ago, I was in St. Petersburg in Russia. I met with two pastors from the underground church in Uzbekistan, which is a country south of Russia. One of those two pastors had been tortured and kicked out of the country, was now living in Russia. The other one had been beaten, arrested,
0: and put in jail for four years. The only thing these guys had done wrong was be followers of Jesus. The Bible tells us we can expect to suffer for being a Christ follower.
1: Maybe not like them, but in some way. When we are faced with difficult choices, what path will we take? In the years to come, it's entirely possible we will make life and death choices if we haven't already. Or either ourselves or someone we know.
0: So let me speak to you for a few minutes about innocent life. Preborn children. Scripture is totally clear. This is the question that rises
1: to the surface above all other considerations. God says this a preborn child is not a potential human being, it's a human being with potential. Preborn child is not a potential human being. They are a human being with potential. Psalm 139 and other places talk very clearly about this. From the moment of conception till death. And yet in Canada, in recent years, anywhere from 80,000 to 100,000 plus abortions can I read to you the best thing I read? I read quite a few things in this last week. Can I read the best thing to you I read all last week? It's by Rick Warren. He was a pastor in the United States. Here, listen to what he said. This was so cool. He writes, When people say, Rick, are you pro-life? I say, no, I'm not pro-life. I'm whole life. I want that little girl to be born. But I also want her to get an education to not be abused, to not be mistreated, to have equal rights. I want her to grow up and be all that God wants her to be. This is the focus of God. The focus is just not on not having an abortion. His focus is on a whole life. A life where he wants to use this little one, wants to come into that child's life at an early age. That he has gifted, that he has plans for, that he wants to bless, that he wants to use, that he wants to use to make a difference for all eternity. Not just this little segment of their life before
0: they're born, but their whole life. Euthanasia is a very hot topic right now. It's
1: being advanced all the time in our country, it's already legal assisted suicide, just last month, on March 21st, more legislation came down to make it more accessible, called MAID legislation, which stands for Medical Assistance in Dying. And it makes euthanasia, assisted suicide, even more accessible in our country. It expands the access and the availability. And what this legislation did is it removed the requirement that a person's death be reasonably foreseeable. In other words, you don't have to be looking and naturally you're going to be coming to the end of your life for them to entertain committing suicide with you, helping you do that. It can be earlier in life. There's other qualifications they have, but they've removed that one. It doesn't have to be reasonably foreseeable. They're also working right now They're projecting in March of 2023. They want to study it for the next two years because they're proposing now in March of 2023 that a person who has mental illness can be assisted in their own suicide. Of course, the other qualifiers are still in place right now anyway. But they continue to advance this forward and forward. Listen, I don't understand personally what these folks have gone through. I don't understand the heartbreak personally. I haven't experienced so many of those things. I haven't experienced the loss perhaps they've experienced, or the significant discomfort they're perhaps going through. But should that lead to euthanasia? Our society is moving more and more towards the idea of personal autonomy, and as we push this more and more, how long will it be before more and more conditions come off until we reach a place of death on demand? And I'm going to go one step further. How long will it be until they say we can't afford you anymore, so you will be we're going to help you along. We're going to have you we're going to terminate you because we can't afford you. With COVID You read some of the economic projections for our world. They're predicting significant economic disruptions in the years to come. Am I overreacting here at all? Or is there some level of historical precedence
0: for these things? I think there is. What does God say? God says all human life is precious. All human life is sacred. Because we are created, it
1: says in Genesis 1, in the image of Almighty God. We have a special place in the creation and also a special responsibility to care for the creation. Take care of it well. We are loved by God. This is at the heart of why Jesus came and sacrificed everything for us. Died for each one of us. And because of this, biblically, this compels us to oppose euthanasia and abortion. Scripture would suggest to us, dignity does not depend on our ability or our circumstances.
0: As believers, we oppose these practices that destroy and devalue human life. The midwives understood this. And they feared God accordingly.
1: Some time ago, I was watching an episode of 60 Minutes. And they presented what I would suggest was a very balanced look at the issue of euthanasia. Sadly, often in the news media, this is not the case. It's Usually just someone's editorial view. But I thought this was very balanced. And it was a story on an individual with ALS. And it was a two-part story. ALS, very very difficult disease. Again, I don't understand this. Never gone through it. Never had a loved one go through it. But very difficult disease. But the first part of the story was about a gentleman called Tom Yokes. Who had ALS. Was in great discomfort. And the story was about him ending his life. Them helping to him to end his life on national TV. The second part of the story was based on a number of people afflicted with ALS and who were choosing life. One man with ALS in a wheelchair was a state district attorney, and he said, you can be bitter or you can choose to thrive. Another man said, I find something good every day as to why to live life. Another person who could only move his eyeball, eyes, They had a screen in front of him, a computer screen, and it was linked to his eye, and he would use his eyes to communicate.
0: And here's what he said to the camera There is something beautiful in every (laughs) day. These guys, in many ways, had a better attitude than many of us that are fully
1: able bodied. And I'm going to suggest, unless there's a massive turning to God here in North America, I can envision the day where Grandpa lives or dies. Or that middle-aged adult with MS. Or that child born with cerebral palsy lives or dies based on what is affordable and what is convenient. Death on demand. Death of convenience. God has so much for folks find them with facing those challenges. He uses them, I've heard stories, I hear stories, even last week heard stories, how he uses them to bring joy to people, how he uses them to point others to himself. Understand clearly they are precious in the sight of Almighty God.
0: As we move more and more down that path as a society, what side will we be on? Joseph Fletcher, who pioneered situational ethics, listen to what he wrote:
1: A fetus—this is the medical term for a preborn child. A fetus has no rights because it is not—and again, this is directly in contradiction to Scripture. Leviticus, directly in contradiction. A fetus has no rights because it is not a moral or personal human being since it lacks freedom, self-determination, rationality, and the ability to choose either means or ends of the knowledge of its circumstances.
0: you know you can say the exact same thing about a one-year-old child or an adult that's delirious? Some of the very same arguments that are used to justify
1: abortion can be used to justify euthanasia. For some in our society that deem these folks are not worth the bother. What are some of the arguments that are used for abortion?
0: This child is unwanted. I didn't plan for this. Another popular one. They might be neglected. Very popular one. Based
1: on what I think they're going to face, it's my decision that what's best for them
0: is just to do away with them. That's my opinion on the matter. And then, the one that's not usually articulated but is often part of the argument, I can't afford this. What's my point in all this? These are extremely emotional issues. And my heart, and I'm going to guess your heart, breaks
1: for the suffering some people go through, through the incredibly difficult circumstances that I don't pretend to personally understand that they go through. So frankly, for many of us, it might be very tempting when the circumstances present themselves to follow a very similar path as some have chosen when it comes to dealing with difficult situations. What standard will we use to make that decision if and when that day comes? I would suggest we use the exact same standard of the midwives, who said in verse 17 and verse 21, I fear God and I will not do this no matter what it costs me. The biblical ethic and I say it again, is that God is the creator of all life. That every human being is equally loved and equally valued by an all-knowing God. That each one of us is created in the image of Almighty God. And there is a sacredness to us because of this. This makes us special and unique in the creation. And because God is the all-knowing and perfect God, Only he can properly make these decisions as to when an innocent life should end. Naturally. I'm not talking about here whether or not you put a person on a ventilator or not, whether to resuscitate them or not, whether to sign a DNR or not, whether or not to take them off dialysis, whether or not it's okay to give them some pain meds that might possibly advance things in a passive way.
0: I'm talking about the deliberate ending of life. Abortion and active euthanasia. God calls us to care for the vulnerable.
1: This was one of the things Christians were known for that all of Roman society noticed. When they would discard their children on the garbage heap, as it didn't measure up in their mind in some way. The Christians were known as the people that would go in late at night, take those kids that were about to die off the heaps of garbage and raise them as their own. God calls us to care for the vulnerable, including those that are ill or near the end of life. And so we support palliative care care as as a compassionate response that cares for ones who are suffering or terminally ill. And frankly, you know, I just went through this with my mom
0: just a few months ago. When we try to make these decisions, if I was trying to make that decision, our emotions come into
1: play, and they're right at the surface, trust me. Our experiences our varying personalities, our different levels of education, our different levels of intellectual capacity, our view of situational ethics, how that person treated me, the memories I have of them. They did that to me when I was a kid. My bank account, our ability to rationalize. And then on top of all that, every situation is a little bit nuanced and a little bit different. This is why God claims this decision for himself. Because he knows us. He knows our limitations. And they are significant when it comes to making these decisions. He knows all that there is, and he will make
0: the right decision. The midwives intrinsically knew this. They respected this understood this is part of what it means to fear God. to Hold him in
1: reverence and in awe, acknowledging him for all that he is and all that he does.
0: My question for me and for you is, what will we do? I would call on all of us to make
1: a commitment that says, I will do whatever I can to preserve innocent life. Maybe that means signing a petition. Maybe it means writing a letter. Maybe it means serving or giving for a pro-life group such as the Lethbridge Pregnancy Care Center, which we have done as a church here. Maybe it means adopting a child that would have been aborted, like some part of my extended family have done. Maybe it means helping that single mom who despite the pressure to have an abortion, chose not to, and decided to raise this child. And and it's difficult for her or for him, a single dad. And they need some help. And I've known people in our church that have really stepped into the lives of people, single parents, and helped them. What a wonderful thing to do. And then to pray for our doctors and our nurses. We have a number of them in our own congregation who have or perhaps will face pressures to do something that goes
0: against some of the oaths that they've taken, to protect innocent life. Now, if a day ever comes where I
1: have to make that life or death decision, I will allow God, who the Bible says is a righteous judge, who the Bible says is the author and giver of life, who the Bible says in Acts chapter seventeen, in Him we move and live and have our being. Say, I'm going to let Him make this decision when an innocent life should naturally end. And in Exodus, the midwives were blessed because they stood for what was right, no matter what the cost. And the question for me is, what will I do?